0: Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barkers UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. In this episode, we look at the exciting opportunities within technology, as innovation continues to disrupt our lives, with Phil Attreed, Head of Investment and Credit Distribution, Mouth Sherry, Investment Consultant, and Ben Rogoff, Polar Capital Partners. To find out about starting your investing journey with Barclays, visit barclays.co.uk forward slash investments.
1: Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Word on the Street. Now, over the summer months, we've run several special editions focusing on investing for innovation. And I'll remind the listeners uh, of the specific episodes at the end if you're interested in catching up. But today, um, we'll take a deeper look at technology innovation, probably the sector investors are most familiar with, given technology's profile in disrupting and advancing so many industries and our lives day to day and to do this topic justice i'm delighted and i have to say excited to be joined by ben rogoff a partner at the asset manager polar capital so ben's co-managed the polar capital global technology fund since 2005 It features on Barclays approved list and whilst the fund is soft closed to most new investors, it is available to Barclays customers, be that through our smart investor platform or via your wealth manager. I should also add at this stage that the discussion today, both in terms of the fund itself and any of the companies that we will absolutely come on to mention, they're there to bring the topic to life um, and they shouldn't be taken as investment advice. Finally, alongside Ben, we have one of our regular speakers, investment consultant, Miles Sherry. So, Ben, thanks for joining us. Uh, Great to have you on the podcast today. And perhaps before we get into some of the examples, it's worth you touching on how you and the team view and approach technology within the fund and how you actually define a technology company these days. Mm. I'm sure it's not quite as simple as it was when I started out.
2: Well, I mean, I'm pleased you prefaced the, the question with that, and uh, and thank you very much for for obviously having me me on to to, to talk today. Um, yes. So when I began, you know, back uh, back in the days of black and white television sets, it already so it feels. Um, you know, I think that, that defining a technology company was easier. Um, you know, I think we focused very much on um the, the, the newest technologies and, and the risks associated with being, I don't know, old hats, you know, I don't know photocopier companies or um, uh, in the cloud age, we, it was very easy to focus on what wasn't working and you know, on premise compute versus cloud and so on. And I think it was very much an industry um, that was delivering technology to buyers of that technology. And that obviously has changed profoundly um, with with smartphones and the internet and the cloud. And if you think about Google, you know, Google is an advertising business um, that uses technology and is enabled by technology. And and we can go through, you know, a raft of companies that are ultimately buyers of technology, products, and then sellers or um, renters of of, of a different product or service. And so as the sector has grown and become more and more important, obviously its share of the S&P has grown, but also it's permeating into sectors that would have been beyond, I would have said, our traditional remits, you know, moving into healthcare some time ago, but more, more recently into areas like payments, you know, f- financial services, um, or, or into areas like education um, with, with, with you know, remote uh, education platforms and so on. So we've always uh, maintained and, and, and used a dynamic approach to identifying what a tech company is. But I think what's critical, because I think you can always make an argument that something's a tech company, um, you know, is to make sure that there's a validation in the form of growth. You know, the markets that they serve need to be growing. The businesses need to be growing, or the most promising divisions in those companies need to be growing. And the gross margins need to be, you know, uh, like a tech company. We, we wouldn't invest in companies with 10% gross margins because they're you know, unlikely to be tech as we know it. And on top, there's lots of other filters that we apply. But, but ultimately, um, it has become more difficult to provide you with a one-liner, uh, which is probably obvious from the verbosity of this one.
1: Quite and Miles, clearly we're going to spend uh, most of the time talking to Ben today. But how do you talk um, to clients as an investment consultant about technology and in the context of you know investing and its role in a diversified portfolio in order to to meet their goals?
0: Yeah, well, going back to what Ben just said, let's be frank. Tech tech is just such a vast term these days, but it's really important to remember that clients invested in one of our multi-asset class portfolios will already have broad exposure to technology. But what Ben and the wider PolarCap team are really looking for is the next generation of winners. Because as the saying goes, today's news is tomorrow's fish and chip paper. So if you look at the top 10 holdings on the fact sheet, that may sound a little bit odd. And that's because you'll see names like Microsoft and Apple. But the fund holds much less in some of these larger companies than their weight in the benchmark. And that really is just because they are so big. But the point is, is that investing in technology is much more about those massive names. It's really about finding the markets that are being disrupted and the companies that sit behind that. So under the bonnet within the fund, you have exposure to many other really interesting companies and not in the benchmark, some of which are smaller in size and are really at the forefront of innovation. So it's essentially a great investment to have sitting alongside that core diversified portfolio aligned to a client's risk profile, for those investors looking to gain exposure to a pure play technology fund. But just on that though, Ben, clients Mm. will occasionally read an article and ask about some brand new technology that's starting to come through that's not really been adopted yet. So how do you actually distinguish between so-called hype and blue sky thinking and actually work out what may make it mainstream? Artificial intelligence is possibly an area that you could talk around in that respect.
2: Yeah, no, great question. Uh, thank you very much for uh, for um, the, the kind of potted view on, on how we are tackling the space. And We're very much focused on trying to identify the key themes, and of course, as part of of making sure that we are, you know, where the puck is going, um, you want to encounter, you know, blue sky stuff. You know, I think when we go into investing, we go in with a very much glass. Half full, really. You know, we're, we're we're optimists, we're excited about technology. We've been, you know, we get up in the morning and we, we you have to be excited by tech to stay ahead of what's what's going on. And so Blue Sky is, you know, part and parcel of our of our world. And you know, things like AI, but also autonomous vehicles, or some years ago, you know, lots of the early stuff like solar cells or whatever it might be. Um, you know, we 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 obviously need to stay uh, abreast of all of the blue sky stuff. The the way that we have typically tackled that, though, is different maybe to others. And I think, you know, do loads of work, um, speak to the sell-side analysts, speak to industry experts, and it's all with a view to trying to establish what the timeline um, to, to real adoption looks like. Because in my, you know, 20-odd years of experience, um, I think, you know, one of the, the key uh, attributes of technology is, you know, it's uh, never underestimate its, its ability to overpromise and under-deliver in the short term and companies do that because you know it helps them raise capital raise their profile um, and, and you know the technology there's lots of very good technology stories that you've you've never heard of because they never came to fruition and our experience is that it almost always takes longer for adoption to reach mainstream than 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 certainly people in the industry would would like to believe so we have a slightly uh, we're careful about investing in blue sky we have a sort of a a watching brief on industries that remain very early stage, very nascent. Things like solid-state batteries, for example, today, you know, fascinating technology. We'll keep an eye, uh, but but it feels much too early for us. Um, and and so, you know, we're also skeptical about different structures, companies that require, um, you know, ongoing financing. We have a, we have issues with companies with weak balance sheets. We don't do public trade venture capital. You know, leave that to leave that to, to private markets. Uh, and, you know, for every, te- for every Tesla, you know, think about the SPACs that just came to the market where you might have lost 90 percent of your money already. So hugely excited about the technologies, doing the work, waiting for themes to reach an inflection point and then being all over them like a rash. But trying to avoid the one of the weaknesses of the tech sector, its ability to overpromise and underdeliver in the short term. Now, how does that relate to AI? I mean, look, it doesn't get any more exciting than AI know, the ability to take vast sets of da- data, vast data sets created by smartphones, the Internet, all these digital footprints that we leave, apply that to cheap processing and storage in the cloud um, and be able to augment human decision making um, is mind boggling. So we have a watching brief. We have some interesting um, names um, in the PCT tale or in, in the universe that we're watching. We have some direct plays today in the form of semiconductor stocks. Um, that will ultimately, we think, capture very large parts of um, the value chain in the end. You know, you look at the um, machine learning today, the, the amount of capacity that you need to store and process data for machines uh, to learn from um, is, is doubling every three and a half months. And We think by 2025, something like 20% of the entire semiconductor food chain um, will be explained by machine learning. So looking very much at the... Um, the, the picks and shovels, if you like, of AI today within the portfolio, but hugely excited because you see what AI has done in in domains like gaming, where we solved for Go, we solved for chess, and look at how AI has played a role in in trying to help sort of um, whittle down you know potential candidates for you know drug compounds for, for during COVID. So we you we know we're solving things like um, predicting the the, the the structures of proteins um, using machines. So hugely exciting. When, when mainstream adoption is is there, we, we will be all over that theme uh, like a rash. But right now, very much involved in semiconductors and in the cloud companies, the infrastructure layer, if you like.
1: Fantastic. It's definitely clear to us that you and the team put a huge amount of work into ultimately building the, the portfolio of companies that, that you have live at any one time. But thinking specifically about innovation, I think, you know, we all... We all remember personal technological milestones, so a bit getting excited about DVDs and not you know, rewinding and fast forwarding the video, streaming music on, on a smartphone or even maybe your first video call, which for many that was probably as, as recent as last year. But Ben, you, you and the guys must see many, many things that excite you and that are close to being a reality rather than
2: blue sky thinking yeah i mean you know it wasn't five minutes ago that we were all you know doing kind of weird things about how we would i don't know stream stuff from one place to another place or you know just to such clunky solutions to problems that spotify resolved you know or netflix resolved people used to upload their dvds to a hard drive and then they could you know and all of that is just gone you know um and we're moving into a world where younger people would just have no idea what what, what we're talking about In fact, i was having a conversation with my eldest son the other day and you know, played a, played a song from, by Frank Sinatra and asked him if he could name, you know, the artist. And he looked at me, you know, blankly, but quite rightly pointed out that if he went onto YouTube or um, Reels, that I would struggle to identify any of the people on those platforms uh, equally. So, you know, the world moves at a rapid pace. Um, what are we most excited about? Well, I suppose from a product level, I mean, we talked a bit about AI, you know, autonomous vehicles. Uh, I mean, how can you not be excited about, about those? Uh, although I think we're still ways away. Actually, if I may, I think the most exciting thing that's happened as a result of the pandemic, and you know, that's an in inverted commas given how awful this period has been. But as an accelerant, um, yes, I think everyone understands what the pandemic has done for technology adoption. But I think what I'm most excited about is the potential that uh, it, it poses for a different work modality. And I know people are probably sick of hearing about remote work, they're probably sick of remote work. Um, but we're moving into a different world, I think, from a work modality perspective, a hybrid working world. And why are we excited about that? You know, when people talk about how many days in the office we're going to work, um, is it going to be three? Is it going to be four? Will it be five? They're missing the point, which is that, that we, we very rarely this happens. You know, the, the office, as the locus of work is over, it was kind of creaking pre-pandemic. Uh, 13% of people, I don't even know this stat, but 13% of people pre-pandemic were already working in coffee shops every day uh, rather than working in a kind of a fixed abode. So, you know, I think as the locus of work changes, you know, very obvious things are, are happening already. Things like de-urbanisation, mass transit systems struggling, cities struggling, you know, massive disruption to how business is done. Business used to be done pe- face-to-face, person-to-person. We used to jump on aeroplanes to go to conferences. We used to go to huge conferences. You know, the business events, business globally is a trillion-dollar industry. Um, we would travel on trains to visit different offices. That, that world is coming to a close. And I think the opportunity for what that means for tech is hugely under, 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 misunderstood or underestimated. Um, and I think what, what, the reason I'm excited about it isn't just for the reasons I've said, but as w- what we've done over the last 18 months is to abstract work from the workplace. And we did this before in compute with virtualization between where, where compute happens and where, where we ultimately consume it. And I think over time, we're gonna see the nature of work transformed. We're gonna see paper eliminated, uh, which is a big statement to make, but interactions like we're having today Um, increasingly digital interactions become data sets that AI can explore and get answers to, you know, to questions of daily questions. And I see that in things like telemedicine. I think the implications for things like productivity, for gender equality in the workplace, for participation rates and productivity, ultimately, I think are hugely misunderstood. And I think that we're really at the very beginning of the sector's ability to begin to scale service Service, the service sector, uh, human labor and services, and I think that you know, again, so much of the value um, will ultimately come to be be earned and owned by technology companies, and that's what I'm most excited about.
0: It's just fascinating stuff, isn't it? There's lots to get excited about, as you say. But how are you actually playing some of this stuff within the fund itself? I'm sure our listeners would be particularly interested just to hear a few examples of some of the companies you invest in and the considerations you made when ultimately coming to a decision on them. Yep. I personally find 5G a really interesting area. Many listening to this probably think, well, it just means I can download a song on my phone maybe one second faster than I could with 4G. But it's so, so much more than that, isn't it? This new connectivity may actually change
2: the world. Well, it's a super, it's, it's a super question. And, and it's great you know, to have the opportunity to give some, I suppose, some examples of stocks, but also themes. And yes, I mean, connectivity... More generally, uh, I mean, it's one of the most, you know, incredible forces for change in the world. You know, countries that don't have fixed line infrastructure can now have 4G and now 5G uh, wireless and, and, and you know, have access via a smartphone to the world's repositories of information. You know, hugely empowering um, and, and a massive accelerant for you know, for, for emerging economies are, are, are across the world. You know, our own excitement, I mean, in fact, I should preface it by saying our own experience of investing in technology for multi-decades has been that it's it's been difficult to monetize data traffic. You know, if you went back to the 90s and beyond, people used to invest in, you know, telecom operators as ways to, to benefit from all of this growth in traffic. But much like the airline industry, um, it's actually been pretty hard to monetize that traffic. In fact, the money's been made by, I suppose, the equivalents of, you know, the aircrafts or the airports. It's been the smartphone makers, the component companies into smartphones. It's been the Googles that have been, you know, much more like the Bureau de Change, uh, if you like, the monetizing vehicles for all of this traffic. 5G is interesting beyond uh, and above, you know, 4G and other infrastructure uh, or connectivity technologies because of the latency, uh, the, 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 by which I mean um, the amount of time it takes for... Uh, a packet of information to travel from point A to point B, and, and what that should enable, and it is great, of course, as a consumer to have faster um, cellular connectivity for sure. But the real story for us, the excitement about five G, is this idea of um, well, a few things: the latency, which means new work, n- new examples, new new cases that couldn't be done before. Like, for example, you know, things like asset tracking um, or. or devices being connected in, you know, beyond but also within factories. So, so factories of the future will, will lean very heavily on this um, cheaper, faster um, 5G connectivity. Um, in the future, we would like to see, we are going to see things like remote surgery. You know, why, why is it that um, you know, patients get different outcomes based on where they live in a world um, where, where a doctor could be performing a surgery remotely connected by 5G? And, and so, without wanting to delve into all of the spectral efficiencies that come with five g and the power envelopes and all of that stuff, I think the key is is that this is not really a consumer technology. this is a technology that's designed to empower um the in the, the the internet of things and you know the factory of the future and and it is hugely exciting Got you and in terms of some of the some of the single
0: line stock examples, I think before we started this podcast, we were talking about names like AMD, HelloFresh, be interesting to get your take on some of those as well.
2: Well, I'd love to. So, so again, these are just sort of, um, you know, whistle-stop tours on a few names that we like in the portfolio, but they obviously fit, you know, the, the way that we construct portfolios is very much top-down, bottom-up. And so it, we have eight core themes, and you would like to think that all of our big bets would sit well within one of those themes. But each of them has been selected based on it's not only top down characteristics, but very much that we like the companies, we bet the management teams and we like we, we want to be, you know, medium to long term investors in them. HelloFresh uh, is, a, is a fascinating story um, that has obviously found, uh, you know, real resonance in a, in a, in a, in, during the pandemic. Um, and, and, you know, it's a direct to consumer groceries business, essentially meal kits. And the like, but but what I love about this story, um, very much by the way, like so many of the very best technology companies, which is that their what they, their initial or obvious proposition isn't necessarily what you're really playing for. And so right now, you know, this theme this works because people have been locked down, they've experimented, um, and and they they like the, the the product. It's you know I think the company grew revenues of more than 100 percent last year. What's fascinating. Is that unlike some of the other um, companies within e-commerce, they're they're not seeing any real issue with reopening at all. And I think last quarter the company grew around 60% year on year against very difficult comps. So again, not pitching the stock directly, but what's so fascinating is that it starts off as a meal kit company, but really the the, the market that they're after is the grocery market, and it's trillions of dollars big, um, and it's a direct to consumer. So rather than you know, so I have a relationship with my customers, um, and over time I think that it has the potential to you know, to arbitrage some of the profits away from consumer products businesses. You know, the, the, the ketchup, the, the companies that make branded um, groceries, um, they, they may be HelloFresh fresh groceries uh, in the future. And so there's, there's some, some really lovely story. And then finally, the bit that I love about the story is it works perfectly in a hybrid world where I may be working from home two days a week and three days in the office. Um, and, and it fits into this idea that with that additional time at home come new habits. And one of them definitively looks like cooking for pleasure. And so it's a story that, you know, per unit of growth, looks not not, not 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 inexpensive, but not expensive, not terribly expensive, more like 40 times fiscal year 22, which I think, given the company's just grown 60% year on year, looks pretty good value. So that's one. Um, I, must, I must quickly touch on AMD, which is one of our big successes really over the years. We bought this one, um, well, about six, seven years ago. Um, and, and I'm sure people know AMD is kind of the, the microprocessor also ran Um, You know, obviously playing very much second fiddle to Intel over the years. The story here, a new CEO um, back in the, I think, 2014, 2015 timeframe, um, an industry where Moore's law is slowing, which has taken away some of the kind of manufacturing advantages enjoyed by Intel, a redesigned product that works very well in this kind of Moore's stress backdrop, um, and a company that has just grown its market share in the all-important server market from 1% traditionally to around 10%, and is, I believe, on track for making years of further gains. And so it's a story that's done very well. But I think it's a it's a company where the long-term market share potential is much higher than sell-side analysts are currently forecasting. And finally, if I may, I was just going to touch on Snap, um, better known as Snapchat, uh, for parents trying to control their Gen Z uh, kids. This is the the pop the, the platform of choice. Uh, I think 90% of all 13 to 24 year olds in the US and the UK are using Snap every month. And they have more than 290 million people using the platform every day. And what's so fascinating about the story is it's been able to carve out a niche, um, not just in terms of its audience, the Gen Z audience uh, and millennials, but also because they have uniquely built platforms around um, lenses and this sort of augmentation of the real world with the digital. Um, and I just think it's a fascinating story, a great way of playing, you know, Demographic trends, but also the idea of augmented reality, which is also an incredibly exciting technology, I believe.
0: Brilliant examples there. Just bringing you back to HelloFresh, I've got to say that's something I'm a big fan of uh, myself. I always use those meal boxes on a weekly basis. But just as a follow on question, it doesn't really sound to me like a traditional
2: technology company. So, what in your eyes actually makes that a tech business? Yeah, well, that's a great question. And as and it, and Thank you for giving me the opportunity. Yeah, It's exactly right. Like, I mean, isn't this just a groceries business? And of course, you know, if it wasn't for things like online advertising and the ability for, you know, how would HelloFresh find customers? So, you know, the acquisition of customers, the managing of churn uh, will be done, you know, using technology, using Google and and, and other platforms. I mean, what about payment? You know, if I had to pay for this door-to-door or some other way, that that wouldn't work. And so, you know, HelloFresh is a beneficiary of, of mobile payments and payment integration in, in, into into apps, smartphones, obviously, as a conduit um, for, for, you know, that's the interface with my customer. Fulfillment, um, the ability to get the product to you fresh, to do it in a way that, um, you know, reduces the number of hops that the food's gone on. And, and obviously, in the end, it's a data business. It's a company that understands what customers are eating and what, what part of the menu needs to be, you know, retained and what part of the menu needs to be reimagined. And so, I mean, this is absolutely it's, it's a great example of a company that would in the past wouldn't have been considered a tech company, but without technology, couldn't have become a technology company, if that makes sense.
1: Thank you, Ben. And, you know, genuinely game changing, life changing advances um, that that you've given us there. Um, Enough certainly to whet the appetite of any investor, I'm sure. But one final question, if I can, a topic that many clients raise, having seen technology related stocks, you know, perform quite staggeringly well in recent years, and especially, you know, post the COVID shock to markets last year. So do valuations enter your thinking and the team's thinking? Or is there always fresh opportunity out there?
2: Well, I mean, look, to start with, valuations are absolutely front and centre for us. Um, they are the second thing we look at when evaluating you know, the technology sector. The first thing we, we care about more than anything is, is the identification of the core themes and the most important businesses to capture, you know, to get exposure to those themes. And the reason that I've, I've made that point again is because what we don't do is apply a valuation you know, filter to, to the stocks that we want to invest in. You know, we bought Google on the first day uh, of, of its public traded history, and it screened badly on traditional valuation metrics. And, of course, what a success Google has been. And, of course, that's cherry picking, but it gives you an idea that what we don't want to ever be is limited um, by so-called valuation um, that, that, you know, will prevent you from owning the most important assets as they, as they grow into, if you like, what look often like uh, expensive valuations. Having said that, valuation, of course, matters a lot. And it matters because valuations, you know, elevated valuations leave you much less margin of safety in the event of, you know, development, an adverse development, uh, for example. Or, you know, valuations often capture, you know, market excitement, market opportunity, the wrong timeline, time frame for mainstream adoption like we covered earlier in in that blue sky segment. So we care a lot about valuation um, and we have, you know, genuine discipline. We, there are lots of stocks that we would love to own in the market right now that we don't because they trade, at, let's say, 30 times sales. And we believe that that, that you know, already captures much, if not more than, you know, the upside associated with that company. So we care a lot. I mean, just where are we in valuations? I mean, the good news is that tech fundamentals have been super strong, um, you know, a little bit, you know, maybe slightly less strong than, than the stocks um there's definitely been more multiple appreciation over the last 12 months um but that's true of the broader market and when you look at tech overall i think you know we're kind of trading somewhere between 1.2 and 1.3 times the market multiple which is very much within the norm um certainly in my you know in the post um bubble world so i'm not overly worried about tech valuations on a relative basis absolute valuations have gone up but there are there are pockets of exuberance there always are and we try to steer clear of those um, even if we like uh you know, the underlying fundamentals. And I think it's a good chance, if I may, just to bring up the, you know, the, the, the point I'm trying to make about valuations earlier is that, um, you know, they're, they're fine when they go well. When you've got Google, that's great. When you found Tesla, fantastic. Um, valuation shouldn't and wouldn't have been an impediment to returns. But when you don't have those companies or where the story isn't quite what you thought, um, you know, the, the challenge in technology particularly is that the industry is not mean reverting. Um, you know, Yahoo didn't come back and, you know, give Google a good run for its money and you know, fight back and wrestle back. It, it didn't. Um, the industry doesn't mean revert because technology doesn't stand still. And so I think this is a sector that um, you have to be very careful about trying to rifle shooting and making big bets in early stage companies with big promises. Um, and, you know, particularly when valuations are elevated. And so, again, I'm sorry if that sounds, you know, negative. It's more that when we put together our portfolios, what we're trying to do is ultimately assemble a portfolio between 60 and 85 growth companies that this year should deliver 34%, you know, believe the numbers, 34% revenue growth in aggregate, and next year, 19% in aggregate. And so what that does, of course, is it means that you can make mistakes, you can get stocks wrong, but hopefully the portfolio should continue to deliver well in excess of what the underlying benchmark's growth rate is for what today it looks like a pretty modest premium of about 14%. Um, greater EV sales than the index. So again, sorry, I'll get off my soapbox, but it, it is an important point. Valuations do matter, but they mustn't prevent you from owning the most important assets within tech.
1: Thank you, Ben, again, for some fantastic insight today. I certainly feel reassured of the prospect for innovation driving investment returns into the future. So to close, I should add that the discussion today, both in terms of the fund and any companies that we've spoken about, were really just to bring the topic to life and should not be taken as investment advice. And as I also mentioned earlier, for those interested in catching up on the previous Investing for Innovation episodes, I'd highlight the following episodes. So number 118, uh, where we talked about whether we're on the brink of the fourth industrial revolution. Episode 123, how is innovation and sustainability shaping the future of investing? And episode 126, where we focused on healthcare innovation. Thank you to our listeners today for joining us. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did and we look forward to welcoming you back next week.
0: All investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.